Connect. Influence. Optimize. You're listening to The Channel Channel, a podcast for executives and others involved in the authorized sale of electronic components. Brought to you by the ECIA, the Electronic Component Industry Association. Working to promote and improve the authorized distribution channel. Welcome to the Channel Channel. I'm Dale Ford, Chief Analyst at ECIA and responsible for ECIA market research and statistics and the host of this session of the Channel Channel, a podcast mm -hmm. sponsored by the Electronic Components Industry Association, covering topics that are important for participants in the electronic component supply chain. I'm very pleased to uh, welcome back once again, Cliff Waldman, New World Economics CEO, host of Manufacturing Talk Radio's Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, and a very seasoned, experienced industry analyst providing coverage of the economy and manufacturing. Cliff was supposed to present at our ECIA executive conference in Chicago this year. Unfortunately, we had to cancel the executive conference, so we didn't have the pleasure of hearing Cliff in person. And so I'm really pleased that we can have an opportunity to talk with Cliff and record it in this podcast to share with our members. So thank you very much for uh, joining me on this podcast, Cliff. My pleasure, Dale. Thanks for once again inviting me. Great, great. Well, we have a lot of big news going on out there. And yes. so I'm looking forward to hearing your insights on some of these key issues that we're looking at and that are in the headlines all the time. I guess the big news this month or maybe even this year is the passage by the uh, US Congress of the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill. Uh, it's intended to add $550 billion to infrastructure spending beyond the roughly $500 billion that was already planned over the next decade. So a big deal. And uh, looking at infrastructure, I guess the key question to begin with is, how does this level of government spending on physical infrastructure impact manufacturing activity and growth? Well, it's public capital, and there's been a lot of research in past decades, actually, to show that public capital incentivizes private capital for a couple of reasons. For one thing, it smooths the functioning of supply chains. It makes it more physically capable of creating manufacturing and industry clusters in areas which are shown to have very powerful effects on growth, on entrepreneurship, on new products, on innovation. So you really get what is known as a big multiplier from infrastructure spending, which is why personally I was delighted to see it happening. It's overdue. We were, you know, a decade overdue for having an infrastructure um, investment. Okay. So, and it may be that manufacturing benefits more from this because as I read some economists say, well, you know, this spending, it's only a half a percent of our annual GDP. It's spread out over so many years that, they see it having a very minor impact on overall GDP growth. But I'm guessing maybe that's maybe true for the overall economy, but maybe manufacturing receives a greater benefit. Well, it's not so much the amount of the investment in relation to GDP, but the multiplier effect. The multiplier effect tells you how much the fiscal investment, that's what this is, reverberates throughout the economy. Now, yes, 
I do think that this is one type of investment where the benefits are already going to go proportionally to the manufacturing sector, although they will they will go beyond that because I mean it's the type of capital that matters a great deal to the the physical functioning of manufacturing, to, you know, to the smooth functioning of transportation arteries, to dealing with our water situation. Water is a key input to a lot of manufacturing processes. Think about food. To, um, to creating a situation that makes it possible for communities to, you know, to, to have positive commuting situations, positive transportation situations, and you get a lot of residual benefit in terms of community functioning being a positive for the labor market, for supply chain functioning, and therefore for manufacturing functioning. So while the benefits are certainly going to go beyond manufacturing, I think infrastructure investment, and this certainly this particular infrastructure investment, is probably going to be disproportionately realized in terms of its benefits within the manufacturing sector. Interesting. Yeah. As, as, I, as I look at the itemized areas of spending, you know, some of the areas that would help the manufacturing and the supply chain most are, well, especially if the environment we're in today, they're talking about 42 billion uh, for ports and airports, um, right. 65 billion for broadband infrastructure development, uh, you know, providing wider access there, uh, 73 billion to update and expand the power grid. These all seem like critical areas that will facilitate other investments, as you say, the private capital coming in for manufacturing as we have a more reliable infrastructure to go with that. Right, because all of a sudden you become in an environment where a very positive physical investment in public infrastructure means that if I'm a manufacturing decision maker, my, my, the dollars I'm betting on um, increasing assembly capacity, increasing productive capacity, are probably going to meet with less cost in terms of their distributional capacities and more benefits in terms of their revenue generating capacities. It's building a better ship for everybody to sail on. So with, with expenditures of this nature, I mean, it's a lot of money, but right. in your experience, how are decisions made on where to direct the money? I guess I'm not as familiar with the workings of how these types of investments are made. I, I can see different regions, you know, Phoenix wants to become a major region for semiconductors. There are a lot of announced plans there, for example. You know, you have different regions that, that, that are attempting to develop areas. Um, is it a situation where companies or local governments are able to get involved to, I guess, lobby for investments in a particular area? What you have to realize is that during this difficult period, this trying to come out of the pandemic, and realizing the, the major challenges that we have with supply chains. We have been thinking a lot about supply chains and we need to do that. We need, economics needs a Manhattan project to really sort of clarify our understanding of supply chain. But there is a, but given your very good question in infrastructure, there is another element of the geometry of certainly of economic activity and particularly manufacturing activity, and that is clusters. Clusters are sort of aggregations of companies, of competitors, of laboratories, of R&D facilities within a geographic area that leverages the, the, you know, the geographic strength of the areas. We have plastics clusters. We have semiconductor clusters. I mean, in the Northwest, we have wine clusters. 
where you know the advantages of the area are leveraged to create a kind of mini economy within those areas. So sometimes that happens naturally, and sometimes it happens by government fiat, by state state government planning. Now, the interesting thing about clusters, by the way, is that the both the economically interesting and the politically interesting thing about clusters is that they tend to cross state lines. You seldom can define a cluster by a state. So, you know, New York, and New, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut uh, can form a cluster where each, you know, each has certain strengths to contribute and certain weaknesses to leverage from the other state. But that that's the way, you know, those sorts of, alloc- you know, geographic allocation areas happen. Again, sometimes it's by government design. Sometimes it just happens because of the uh, the, the resource and the uh the labor market and the locational um, <coughs> areas, <coughs> excuse me, and the locational geometry of the area. But that's, that's the way, you know, um, regions move forward this way. Okay, very interesting. Okay, thank you. Well, maybe we can move on to, to a topic, I, I guess is related. Uh, uh, one element in driving this area is uh, government spending, but Recent reports, you know, we've noted a rapid increase in inflationary pressure with inflation hitting right. multi-decade highs. Some say that this is going to be with us for an extended period of time. Like, you know, people like on the extreme, you've got people like Jack Dorsey warning of hyperinflation. Right. <laughs> Hope that's not true. While others like the Fed say they can manage this and it's only going to be transitory. What's your opinion about how this inflation is going to play out and, and how it impacts manufacturing. Well, a, a couple of things about inflation. If you look at the, the long history, going, let's say, back to the late 1950s, of, uh, and let's take the broadest measure of inflation in the economy. And to me, the best broad measure of inflation in the economy is the consumer price index excluding food and energy. Now, every time I say that, people naturally come back with the line that, you know, we all pay for food and energy. I do, you do, everybody does. But you remove food and energy because, first of all, they tend to be increasingly um, globally determined. And second of all, they tend to be um, so volatile that it's almost hard to ascertain a direction. If you remove food and energy from the consumer price index, you have a rational way of looking at the, the real trend, underlying trend in inflationary pressures. Let's go back to the 1950s. And of course, everybody's going to focus on the, dreaded, uh, on the dreaded great inflation, as it's called, of the 1970s and the early 1980s. Now, if you look at that horrible period, what you find is not, it's not so much that inflation was very high, is that it was extremely, remarkably volatile. You would have soaring inflation in uh, a few years and crashing inflation in a few years and then soaring inflation in a few years. So it wasn't just high, it was extremely unstable. So if you go, you know, fast forward to the period today, in, and let, let's go back, you know, to 2008 and 2009, after the financial crisis, for many years after the financial crisis, and really up to the time of the pandemic through 2019, there was a slight concern about deflation, about inflation being too low. 
And in fact, the Fed was, you know, getting very frustrated about never being able to meet its two percent targets. Now, now of course you have a number of things that are causing inflation to spike to the four or five percent range. Certainly, supply chain disruptions are doing that. They are causing massive increases in raw materials prices. There are labor market disruptions that are going are happening concomitantly with supply chain disruptions. And wages are, are therefore, and it's, it, it, you know, you can tell a million stories about it. It's, it's a different story in every, in every sector of the economy, in every industry. But there are labor market disruptions, which are generally pushing up wages in a healthy, nonetheless difficult, nonetheless challenging uh, a way. I would say, to answer your question, you know, yes, if you look at the graph, we've had, we've had a spike in inflation, but during, at the beginning of the pandemic, again, going to volatility, at the beginning of the pandemic, you had a sharp drop, you had a pretty sharp drop in inflation. Now we have a spike due to supply chain, due to the dip, uh, the challenges in, in labor markets. I, you know, I, I, I would call it, I, I, you know, I, I would call it a problem, but I, I wouldn't absolutely panic about a hyperinflation. There's no reason to believe that we have a, you know, that we have a, a, an econ- economy that is prone to hyperinflation. I do think that some of it is that a lot of it's supply chain driven. So when supply chains do correct, they'll come down. The danger is, is that it gets inflationary psychology starts to impact wage negotiations, business decisions, and that's uh, after, and, and after that, it becomes difficult to um, to correct once it's into the psychology of economic decision making, a business decision making. So in order to make sure that that doesn't happen, the Fed has to be very credible, has to remain very credible as being an inflation fighter, even if it's not going to make drastic moves now, which is understandable. It has to convince the financial markets and business in general that it is not going to tolerate a long-term, you know, above stable inflation. That four or five percent is not acceptable. I think if it comes down to three percent, that's fine. I think a little bit more uh, inflation than we've had over the long term. That well, we couldn't even reach that two percent really since 2010. I think that would be healthy because it would create an atmosphere for some better pricing capacity on the part of businesses. But the Fed has to tell us that it won't accept a you know four or 5% inflation over the long term. So this is not anything close to the 1970s. The 1970s were, dramatic, were a dramatically different story. Where I, there's no reason to believe that we're prone to hyperinflation, but it's a critical moment for policymaking because if we don't want four or five percent inflation going beyond this period of time, even if it's a lot of that supply chain generated, the Fed has to prevent the psychology of inflation from totally you know, seeping into the economy. And it has to let it know, no, it won't tolerate four or five percent inflation for years to come. And I think that's, that's the best picture I can draw. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's encouraging. Any of us who lived through the 70s and not just the inflation, right. but the stagflation, we never want to return to that again. Um, right. Uh, gas so, lines and all of that. It was horrible. Yeah, yeah. So 
previously in our last chat, we, we talked about the proposed climate and climate and social infrastructure bill. And right. negotiations still continue. We don't know exactly what's going to be in, yeah. what's going to be out, if it'll pass, what have you. But you know, there are, you know, there are concerns that adding additional debt, you know, if they can't really pay for it, or if they pay for it with much higher taxes, there's concerns about what impact that will have. How do you see the potential benefits and or negatives uh, for the manufacturers in this proposed bill? Well, you have you have so many things jumping into the bill and jumping out of the bill that it, it you know, right now it's a little bit hard to characterize it. Let's let's deal with the macro issue of debt. I mean, for a while, you know, the, the, you know, debt to GDP ratio in the United States economy prior to the uh, to COVID was a little over 100 percent. And now that jumped, as you can imagine, jumped dramatically during the, um, the COVID years. I still don't think that it's at a point where uh, where, you know, where, where, you know, we're dealing with a debt level danger. For one thing, let's remember that, um, you know, the United States um, fixed income markets are the most stable, <coughs> are the most stable and respected markets in the world. And as long as foreigners are willing to keep buying our treasury bonds, and there is absolutely no reason to believe that it won't, the debt situation is not going to be uh, unsustainable. What we may want to worry about is a law is a long term problem where we're you know, interest on the debt becomes like uh, much too high of a government expenditure relative to what else, you know, we could be using the money. You, you, you know, you want to put your kids through school and not pay, you know, huge amounts of, 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 you know, interest on your credit card debt. But I think right now we're in a position where we can manage the debt. In terms of its impact on manufacturing, you know, you have you have such a hodgepodge of things in the bill. I would say that two things, you know, the things that I'd like to see for manufacturing in the bill relate to human capital. For for many, many years, the conversation when I have conversations with manufacturing, I've had conversations with manufacturing executives, the first thing that comes up is not taxes, not regulations, not who the president is, but people. Getting get, fulfilling jobs, so I tend to think that I'd like to see two things. I think pre-K, which scientifically is shown to be a very good benefit, and you know, free community colleges would uh, would be a very very good thing for uh, for manufacturing. Our community colleges are a greatly underutilized resource, and I think we if we start utilizing them, it will find that there's a, a great benefit there. So. For the manufacturing sector on the social spending sort of bill, I, I do think that anything related to development of human capital is going to be a positive. Now, for climate change, climate change is, is going to be, you know, a, a, a double-edged sword for manufacturing. Obviously, there's going to be a cost to not only manufacturing, but certainly, <coughs> certainly the manufacturing for um controlling greenhouse gas emissions, et cetera. And then the, uh, by the way, the agricultural sector is going to be realizing a great cost for the, all the methane that, you know, is produced out of agriculture. But uh, I, I also think that there's an opportunity for manufacturers to innovate because uh, climate change can create a lot of innovative potential. Remember, what, what we specialize in 
in the U.S. domestic manufacturing base is, is high-tech equipment, high R&D. We, ironically, we, we sell to other manufacturing sectors. So, yes, climate change would be a cost, but it could also be a benefit. And if the, the, the new the bill that we're still waiting for is structured in such a way, it should incentivize manufacturers to really create climate-friendly capital. So I'd like to see that. I'd like to see pre-K. I'd like to see community colleges. Those three things will tell me that the, uh, the big social spending climate bill will be good for manufacturers. That's what I'm looking for there. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, uh, there's all kinds of proposals related to the taxes. So I, I, again, I know it's not settled at all. I mean, everything ranging all the way up to even taxing unrealized capital gains, but the tax proposals in the bill, do you think that there's a potential that it pushes manufacturers to reverse their uh, reshoring efforts? No, no, I don't. It, taxes, taxes are, are you know, uh, are interesting all around. There is, there is certainly taxes of location decision-making, just in terms of the basic location of, of production and location along the supply chain are, 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 they are complex decisions. Yes, taxes play a role about where you do your business, but it is one of many factors that particularly large manufacturers take into account when they make a decision about how to allocate their productive capacities um, around the world. So I don't think that I would not fear, particularly in this world of the complex world, right, that we're living in, that, you know, the tax provisions are going to cause them to make dramatically, you know, reverse dramatically their decisions on, on bringing uh, on so-called reshoring. Although I will tell you, I think reshoring is somewhat of a misguided concept, but taxes are, are not the powerful the all-powerful, you know, um, location decision-making variable that they are often made out to. They have an impact. They matter, but they matter with six or seven other things as well. Okay. Well, continuing on the topic of taxes, we have this push for the global minimum corporate tax of 15%. Right. Um, and the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, They've announced the right. agreement by 136 companies, only four countries, countries, I mean, only four countries haven't joined the agreement to, to adopt this. Now it has to, to also be, uh, get support from G20 and, and go to all the local governments as well. But uh, this, this proposal for uh, a, a minimum tax, um, do you think that uh, encourages localization, encourages more supply chain stability or does the inability to really, I don't know what teeth this agreement has, would the inability to really enforce the agreement leave the US at a disadvantage compared to say if China said, oh, no, we're not really gonna do it? I, well, yeah, you know, in terms of the, of the geopolitics of it, uh, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out. I think on the margin, it will probably slow the flow of productive capacities out of uh, you know the high tax, high generally high tax and high wage um, areas. High taxes, and high wages tend to go together. So I, I, I tend to think that it will slow the movement of capital. And and you are you know this rate 
it, it's a good thing in the sense that it will um, it, it, it won't stop, but it will certainly slow this race to the bottom uh, with taxes. Uh, but also, let's, let's remember something. We're living in, in, in an area with two big challenges that domestically in any, any, company, any country, any, any country are going to uh, play a role. One is inequality. That is, you know, at least socially and politically, you know, sort of pressure, uh, putting upward pressure on taxes. The other is climate change. You know, and, and the need that all countries are going to have to do, you know, to spend money to make investments to do their part for a, a, a what is truly a growing threat uh, to the world. So, you know, and, ta- and corporate taxes are going to be part of both of those, um, the calculus of both of those issues in all countries. So I think, you know, I think a global minimum tax is a good thing in the sense that it, it, it will stop the, the race of, of the, you know, this inefficient race to the bottom. But as I said before, let's not overstate it because, yes, taxes matter in a company, in a company's, in a U.S. company's decision, whether to, where, to, where to put their productive capacities, how to allocate their productive capacities along you know from country to you know in a multi-country supply chain that we or supply chains that we play in but it's they're not the only thing the the labor force the you know relation the, the government bureaucracy the specialist the resource um specialization um trade issues um those things matter in terms of de- deciding where to put plants and offices and r d facilities as much as taxes do. So, yeah, I, I think when it comes to taxes, we have to, you know, the people tend to lose perspective thinking that that's the driver of location decision. It's, it's really just one of many. Okay, okay. Well, let's wrap up on the topic I think that's of greatest interest <laughs> to our members, which is the supply chain crisis and lead times. Uh, you know, the government's making some efforts to to find solutions here. But in spite of that, you hear people now, CEOs now talking about this not being resolved until 2023. I mean, how do you see the wider effects of this supply chain crisis impacting the the manufacturing space? Well, we already talked about one, and that is um, inflation. It is uh, pushing up prices, uh, you know, all along the supply chain and having a, you know, an effect on, on, you know, end user prices and consumer prices, producer prices. So that's certainly one thing. And to the extent that in manufacturing is very impacted by GDP in the broad economy, to the extent that that may, uh, you know, have to, you know, create a, a sharper moves than we saw, sharper and earlier moves than we saw by the Federal Reserve and slow the recovery, it will impact, uh, it will impact manufacturing. Um, it will also it also means that for the same level of demand, we can't produce as much. We, you know, uh, if, if you look at, um, you know, I, I never want to point to only one economic indicator, but the Institute for Supply Management has its monthly report on manufacturing, which is, you know, comes from the um, survey of uh, purchasing managers. It is the, uh, going back to 1931, I might add, it's the oldest survey indicator in the United States. And um, I always comment on it on social media and other places, but it's been this, exactly the same story month after month after month for almost the past year. 
the demand-related indicators have been white hot. But when you look at, you know, output and production, it's slowing, it's weak because they can't meet the demand. We, we, you know, and so what I'm going to suggest is, and I'm going to suggest to my fellow economists, we, we've, there's been some work on understanding supply chains. I want to say it's zero, but I think economics needs a Manhattan Project to really sit down collectively and improve our understanding of supply chains, how they form, how they change, how they evolve. Even the word, the word's even wrong. It's not even a chain. They're more like supply systems, supply ecosystems. If you looked at the geometry on a piece of paper, supply chain, it's not a chain. It's more of, you know, it's more of a a circle. uh, It's anything but a chain. So, I mean, that already becomes a, a problem. We we uh, we need to understand supply chains and we and we need a supply chain policies uh, policies it, economic policy as it, as it normally is you know uh, fiscal policy monetary policy those things are all geared toward manipulating demand the level of demand when whenever it's needed we need to think about how to influence supply outcomes too we've always just sort of taken it for granted now so. There has to be a research effort uh, on supply chains. I think I think companies need to work on developing data for supply chain visibility, for really telling them where the stresses are, when the stresses are getting better or are about to get worse, leading indicators of their supply chain. Because in this world, what what's more important in terms of anticipating turns in their business? I mean, obviously, turns in their business means turns in your customer demand, but you have to look at the supply end of the equation, too. And I think this period of time is telling us, hey, got to look at both sides of the menu. Yeah, with business, but our capacity, but the manufacturing sector's capacity to meet the business has to help. Now, infrastructure investment will help. The president, I think, has put forth, uh, you know, this idea of really making a multi-billion dollar investment in ports. I agree with that. You know, with all the talk about digitization of supply chains, none of it matters if huge, huge ships are getting stuck in the Suez Canal and, in, you know, in other ports. We have to do something um, about that. So we, we have to start from economists, business analysts, business people, all have to engage in a Manhattan project of really coming to a better understanding of supply chains, how to, how to deal with problems, what they mean, how, how, they're, how they're evolving than we have. Because I, I, I quite honestly think that all of us got caught flat-footed on this problem. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, when I look at it, I conceptualize it as a very complex web. When I think right. about it, and in trying to address it, though, you, there's so many interested parties that have to look at it. For example, you know, you talk about human capital. Well, the, you, you talk about the investments in, in technologies. They know the technologies will help improve the efficiency of the, of the ports, but the labor unions are opposed to those investments because they would lose so many jobs. And so everybody's going to have to have a, an ability to influence uh, this analysis, I guess you could say. It's, as you say, it's, it's a very complex situation where not all interests are necessarily aligned, I guess you could say. So yes, yeah. it's a very challenging situation. 
<laughs> Thank you very much, Cliff. I really appreciate you tackling some of these tough topics and sharing your insights with us. And we will look forward to catching up with you again in the future, hopefully, and cross our fingers for uh, smooth seas and fair skies. So, <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. Great. Thank you, Cliff. Well, thank you very much.